Hello and welcome to the St Mungo's Podcast. This is episode 65 and today's guest is Tom DeLowry from the United States. He's a haematologist and an educator and his talk today is on inherited bleeding disorders. Now this is one of four talks that he's given on the Continuous Pocketbook for Emergency Medicine. And before we get into the talk, I managed to get Tom on a call to talk about his top five tips for emergency medicine. I hope you enjoy this episode. So I'm here with our speaker for today's episode. Absolutely delighted, Tom, to have you. Um, just, just for the benefit of our listeners, would you mind just giving us a little bit of a background to you, uh, your professional background, and where you are in the world? Great. Well, I'm uh, Tom DeLore. I'm out in Portland, Oregon in the United States. Beautiful area. I'm looking out the window right now at some mountains and the leaves turning. Uh, I'm a hematologist. I've been at the Oregon Health and Science University for uh, many years, and I do general classical hematology, and I just love it. I also actively teach, and I have actually a interest in wilderness medicine. So uh, I just have a great time, and I really enjoy uh, teaching people about things. Thank you very much, Tom. And you are one of our biggest contributors to the pocketbook <laughs> of emergency medicine and continuous. So thank you very, very much. And we're going to play one of those wonderful talks now. But we wanted to just get you on this call just very, very quickly, just to get five key pearls uh, that you would share from hematology, uh, but for the benefit of emergency clinicians. So what, what would those be? Sure. I, I thought about this, and I think the five things I would recommend off the top of my head one is transexamic acid. You know, it's come under some hard times with negative trials uh, in the past year, but still a very useful drug. And one area I find it for is a useful adjunct for patients with hemophilia, von Willebrand's disease with mild bleeding. It's it's great for uh, nosebleeds. I use it a lot for gut bleedings. So, so I think especially topical transexamic acid, there's a lot of use for it. Secondly, one thing I always do when I see a patient with hemophilia, uh, with any bleeding disorder, I just ask them what to do. I mean, they've had the disease all their life. They know much more about it than me. And they're pretty good saying, hey, this is my typical arm bleed. I take this much factor. This is my typical pain here. Hey, you know, I infuse, something's not right. So I think talking to the patient with hemophilia is a valuable source of information. My my third tool is is one I, I do believe a bit in, but I also understand why some people don't. And I think there is great value to adopting a set of prediction rules for DVTs and PEs and sticking with it. You know, I think there's a lot of advantage to the PERC rule and people with low probability PE of even doing any testing. I think following the algorithm is is pretty clear and helps. And again, I totally understand. You know, our ER is full. There's people coming out the windows. Sometimes it's just more efficient just to go to testing, just to get patients triage. But I think learning a set of prediction rules, they've all been validated, can help uh, eliminate unnecessary uh, workups. You know, another thing I'm a big fan of is intravenous iron in the emergency room. A lot of times, primary care docs, uh, OBGYNs will send a patient who's clearly iron deficient to the emergency room for a transfusion. And that's just a temporary fix. But you give them a thousand milligrams of IV iron, their problem is solved. And it's safe, it's effective, it's you know, an hour at most. And I think that can be actually a very useful uh, therapy and something that should be thought about in iron deficient patients because they'll get better just as quickly as they would with a transfusion and they'll stay better longer. Finally, Although we do love the drugs, I think 
still there's a great underuse of direct oral anticoagulants. Uh, they're clearly safe and effective in cancer patients. They're effective in cerebral vein thrombosis, portal vein thrombosis. So I think we still need to have wider use of these drugs in many situations. It's easier. Uh, the patient is uh, quicker on effective therapy than the old anoxaparin warfarin. And so I think getting the patients really at the wide variety of indications on DOAC is pretty effective. They don't work in very bad antiphospholipid disease. They don't work with mechanical heart valves. But you can use them in cancer patients. You can use apixaban in people with end-stage renal disease. They're pretty useful. Again, cost is an issue for some patients, but these are pretty useful drugs. So I think at least as of this morning, those would be the five tips I would think about for my uh, emergency room colleagues. Hi, I'm Tom DeLore, and I'm at the Oregon Health and Science University, and I'm delighted today to speak about inherited bleeding disorders. I have... Uh, no uh, relevant financial disclosures of interest. What we're talking about today is going to be hemophilia A and B and von Willebrand's disease, which both of these by far are the most common bleeding disorders one is likely to see in clinical practice. So what is hemophilia? Well, hemophilia is a very severe bleeding diathesis in many patients that is, occurs over 95% of the time in men because uh, it is uh, X on the X chromosome and the X length. Uh, there are women who do have severe hemophilia and we're discovering many carriers may also have some bleeding symptoms. And it's probably by far the most common severe bleeding diathesis affecting one in about 10,000 people. So what causes hemophilia? Well, hemophilia A, which is 90% of hemophilia is missing factor eight. And this is a crucial blood clotting protein that's an essential cofactor uh, for the activation of factor 10. Hemophilia B is missing factor nine. Factor nine works with factor eight to activate factor 10. So interestingly, both of these bleeding issues are really at the uh, conversion of factor 10 by factor nine with the help of factor eight. And the classification is really based on levels. Uh, severe hemophilia, which is 1% or less of levels, is characterized by a lifelong history of severe spontaneous bleeding, especially into joints. Moderate hemophilia with about 1% to 5% of factor levels, one does see increased bleeding, bruising, especially with minor trauma. Interestingly, mild is having 5% of factor or more, and actually most patients do well, except obviously with trauma or surgery. And this is why uh, hemophilia has been such a target for genetic therapy, because even if the genes are very inefficient, getting somebody's level even to five to 10% is enough that uh, they don't need a uh, factor except for uh, trauma or surgery. Now, what are the symptoms of hemophilia? And the key symptoms are joint bleeds. Uh, these are painful, swollen, warm joints. And these can be uh, spontaneous or again uh, with trauma. And so what will happen is the patient will notice very severe pain because pain in the synovial joint is extremely painful. The joint will be swollen. Uh, it will be very warm. It'll almost look like a septic joint because blood is very inflammatory. Now, interestingly, it will occur in what we call target joints. That is certain joints bleed more than others. And the thought is one gets an initial bleed 
And then this predisposes to further bleeds in this joint. And these can vary. So a lot of my patients will say it's the left knee and maybe a little bit the right ankle. And again, the pain is due to blood in the joint space, both because it's very inflammatory and the excess pressure of the bleeding in this space is very painful. Well, this is a diagram to show why we fear joint bleeds a lot. In the beginning, the joint bleed is very inflammatory, very painful, but over time it can destroy the cartilage and can lead to a very severe uh, joint damage and joint arthritis, what we call hemophilia arthropathy. And this can be very, very disabling to patients. In fact, to prevent this, what we do nowadays in both patients with hemophilia A and B with severe disease, we will use what's called prophylactic therapy. And so patients will take a dose two to three times a week of factor eight or nine to prevent this type of spontaneous bleeding. And this has been shown in randomized trials to actually both pre prevent joint disease, uh, prevent the need later on for surgery, which you can imagine is a major ordeal, and associated with improved quality of life. So many patients you'll see with severe hemophilia will be on uh, low-dose factor therapy. So how do we treat joint bleeding? Well, the therapy is to raise factor levels of uh, 80%, then 40% uh, every other day. Uh, we try to limit the motion, and we almost never, never tap the joint. Uh, septic joints, septic arthritis is rare. Tapping the joint will obviously just lead to more trauma and more bleeding. So the key is to raise the factor. And again, many patients with severe disease will have factor at home to treat themselves. Muscle bleeds is also another major issue, and this can occur in any large muscle group. Uh, severe bleeding can, and especially the legs or the forearm, can lead to compartment syndromes where there's nerve damage and nerve compression. Uh, obviously, this is also very painful. And a difficulty of bleeding into the muscle is it just tends to expand and expand. There's not much uh, to stop the bleeding. Uh, it's rare to get compression, especially if it's in the flank. And one can see very large hematomas. A particularly feared bleed is an iliopsoas bleed. This can prevent present with back pain, limitation of hip extension, but this can get in the femoral canal and uh, lead again to nerve damage and nerve compression. And again, with an iliopsoas bleed, there's a possibility of packing away a lot of blood and having a very major bleed. So what's the key to muscle bleeds? Uh, it's recognition and patients with any type of pain or uh, asymmetry of the muscle, this needs to be a concern. Imaging is also important. One, to document the muscle bleed. Secondly, on the off chance, there's actually a bleeding arterial source, this needs to be treated. In general, we don't intervene except to raise factor levels. And again, raising factor levels uh, to 50%, higher if it's a severe bleed or an intervention is needed uh, is key. Uh, we often don't intervene, that is we don't train these or try to do surgical interventions because sadly they'll most often just re-bleed and one must wait time for these to be reabsorbed. Now, the worst thing we fear in hemophilia is intracranial hemorrhage. And this is now the leading cause of death in hemophilia. And the patients will present with the worst headache of their life or have these happen after minor trauma. And here, 
we treat first, get imaging second, because if the patients have an intracranial hemorrhage, time is very important. So if one of my patients calls me with the worst headache of their life, or they fell, lost consciousness, and has a bad headache, I will tell them to immediately infuse, or if they don't have factor, go to the emergency department, get immediately infused, and then we image the patient. Risk groups are obviously minor trauma, and as we know with our patients who are also anticoagulated, this can be very difficult, but again, we err on the side of caution. And with any minor trauma, especially if the patient saw stars, passed out, any loss of consciousness, uh, we will give factor and image. Thrombocytopenia, so if the patient has liver disease, untreated HIV disease, and has low platelets, this is also a major uh, risk factor for getting intracranial hemorrhage. And especially in older patients, it may be spontaneous. So we work to control blood pressure, we work to control other risk factors, but often as the patient gets older, they may have a spontaneous intracranial hemorrhage. What is the therapy? Again, we try to get the levels up over 100% ASAP. And we'll talk about dosing, but we get very aggressive dosing. And again, if there's any suspicion of intracranial hemorrhage, infuse first, get imaging after that. You don't want to waste time uh, sitting on an intracranial hemorrhage. Now, what do we do with factor replacement? Well, right now we use recombinant factor products. And there's two main flavors. For emergency use, there's regular half-life products of factor eight. And uh, these are recombinant and these are used preferentially. Now for prophylaxis and preventive scent therapy, there are available longer acting half-life products, but we tend uh, uh, not to use these for emergency situations. Now there's still uh, plasma derived products. We tend not to use these again for due to concern about uh, infectious risk or other untreated infections uh, that still may be available in the blood supply. And if all else fails and you have cryoprecipitate, that is a source of factor rate. But in general, we really aim to use the recombinant products. Dosing, there's several different ways of dosing. Uh, the most scientific way is to get the desired factor eight level minus the current level, times it by the weight and divide it by two. Or more routinely, level desi desired divided by two times kilogram. And a rough and ready rule, if you think it's an intracranial hemorrhage, it's a life or limb threatening bleed, we get 50 units per kilogram uh, as a dose. So those tends to be the standard dosing of factor eight. Now, one thing that will complicate up to 10% of patients with severe hemophilia are factor eight inhibitors. And this is where um, antibodies form to the product and you really can't use the factor eight products. So they can't get factor eight and get good levels. This used to be a very devastating complication of hemophilia because you couldn't treat the patient, but now we have newer drugs to make this better. And what we do now is for acute therapy, there are two options. Patients, especially older patients, we use something called Novo7 or Recombinant 7A. This bypasses the factor uh, nine and 10 complex, bypasses factor eight, and directly stimulates coagulation. And the dose we'll use is 90 micrograms per kilogram, usually repeated every two to three hours, times three for a minor bleed, 
maybe all day or a couple of days for very severe bleeds. Another product that uses is called FIBA, Factor 8 Inhibitory Bypassing Activity Product, 50 units per kilo. The problem with this product is it's very prothrombotic and really can only be dosed once or twice. Now, a major breakthrough in Factor 8 inhibitors was the development of the monoclonal antibody Imzazuzumab. And this actually brings together factor nine and factor 10 and replaces factor eight. So many patients with factor eight inhibitors now will be on this chronically. In fact, it's so effective, we're actually starting to use it in patients with routine hemophilia. The benefits, especially for patients with factor eight inhibitor is it dramatically reduces the risk of bleeding and it's only an injection once a month. And so we're seeing more and more patients on these. A burn point is that if somebody is on emzaluzumab, that actually their PTT factor eight levels due to laboratory interference will be normal. So that can be a burn point if a patient comes in with trauma. For factor nine, we have recombinant products because plasma is a very poor substitute. The average unit of FFP only raises a factor level by 5% and it's woefully inadequate for hemophilia. So the dosing can be a little tricky. So it's more one-to-one -one. and it's desired factor nine concentration minus current level times weight in kilogram. And with recombinant products, you seem to need a little fudge factor of 1.2. So for severe bleeding, I'll give 120 units per kilogram to make sure we get a good rise uh, in patients for factor nine dosing. So again, a little bit more seems to be needed. What are heme, uh, burn points for hemophilia? Ignoring the patient. The patient's had hemophilia all their life. They know more about it than you do. And so I'll listen to dosing. I'll listen if even the exam's unremarkable, if they're concerned they're bleeding and treat the patient. Difficult to do in some situations, but ideally, if you're treating severe bleeding, you need levels. Again, some places they're not available and uh, we just have to guesstimate the dosing. And again, heme libra in people inhibitors, and now some people with congenital disease may be a big issue. The labs will look totally normal, and we give recombinant 7A or uh, in patients with, who have, uh, don't have inhibitors, factor eight for bad bleeding. Now let's switch gears to von Willebrand's disease, uh, which is a very common minor bleeding disorder. Women tend to have it more than men. Uh, in theory, it should be 50-50, but women more often, often get diagnosed due to heavy periods, pregnancy bleeding, and other issues. It's difficult because there's multiple form of von Willebrand's disease. Most, but not all, are mild and can respond to DDAVP desmopressin, but there are some burn points. And ideally, you need to know what exact type of von Willebrand's disease the patient has and we'll evaluate with getting a von Willebrand's activity, a von Willebrand's antigen, and a factor eight level. So von Willebrand's, what it does is it binds platelets to damage endothelium. So it is initially responsible for the platelet plug in the beginning of hemostasis. So people with von Willebrand's disease will have gum bleeding, heavy periods, easy bruising, joint bleeds, except in very severe von Willebrand's disease is rare, rare, rare. Now, there are multiple types of von Willebrand's disease. 
most patients will have low concentrations of normal protein, sort of a quantitative defect, and this is about 80% of patients. Uh, their levels may be 30% of normal. We end up with the type twos where things get more complicated. Uh, these are abnormal von Willebrand's proteins. Sometimes they fail to form the high molecular weight multimers. Sometimes they don't bind to platelets. Sometimes they don't bind to factor eight. An interesting function of von Willebrand's disease, it actually carries and protects factor eight. So no von Willebrand's, no factor eight. Type three is a very rare and difficult type because you don't, don't you're, you're missing both von Willebrand's factor and you're missing factor eight. There's platelet types, there's acquired defects. Again, we spend a lot of times among ourselves arguing about exact diagnosis. And this is a, a recommendation of a diagnostic algorithm. I'm not putting this in to suspect people will learn to diagnose von Willebrand's disease, but just to reinforce that sometimes even among hematologists, the exact subtyping can be difficult. And that's why I always, again, err on the side of very aggressive therapy in severe bleeding. What is the therapy? DDVP is used for mild cases. This will release uh, the von Willebrand's protein from the endothelium and raise levels to over 100%. So in minor trauma, somebody gets a cut, a nosebleed, I use it for patients with minor surgery, I'll use DDAVP. Right now, a product called Humate-P uh, is really factor is von Willebrand's factor concentrate. It contains both von Willebrand's factor and factor eight. And I use this for severe bleeding. If I'm called by our trauma unit, there's a patient with von Willebrand's disease in a car wreck, I just immediately treat them with uh, Humate-P, the factor, the von Willebrand's concentrates, because I don't, I don't want to mess around worrying about DDVP or what type they have. And I use it for life-threatening bleeding. I never use DDAVP empirically if I don't know what type of von Willebrand's disease the patients had, and it's not documented they receive it before. Now, DDAVP is a workhorse. 0.3 micrograms improves platelet function. We use it in von Willebrand's disease. 50% uh, of patients with platelet dysfunction will respond. It's actually documented to be good for antiplatelet-induced bleeding. This is a very useful option. The burn point is it is an antidiuretic hormone and be careful to free fluid. The patient may get hyponatremia. Humate-P is a funny product. It was originally developed as a factor eight product, it is quote, contaminated by von Willebrand's factor and is now available as von Willebrand's factor replacement. The dosing is 40 to 80 international units of von Willebrand's Ristocetin cofactor activity per kilogram. I apologize in advance, the uh, units are kind of bizarre. In general, the more severe the von Willebrand's disease the patient has, I will give them 80 units per kilo of von Willebrand's product. There is recombinant von Willebrand's factor, but it's actually complex to use because you have to give it with recombinant factor eight. And, and anyway, in emergencies, I go with Humate-P. So useful treatment by uh, types is Mild type one for mild bleeding, I use DDAVP. Severe bleeding, Humate P. The type twos in general, I use Humate P. The rare platelet type, we don't know. And a word I'll put in is transexamic acid. As you know, this is a very useful adjunct 
uh, especially in von Willebrand's disease. And if the patient's having very severe bleeding, I'll also throw in a uh, thousand milligrams IV of transexamic acid to help uh, stop the bleeding. Now, what are the burn points with von Willebrand's disease? One is just simply treating blindly with DDAVP. Again, if you don't know the patient's type, you haven't documented, there's no documentation, they've had it before, don't use it. Secondly, blaming all symptoms on bleeding. And I've seen this sometimes in women who've popped an ovarian cyst or other issues where there's other things going on. And again, you can't really use routine tests to assess somebody with von Wolbrandt's. Often the PTT and other bleeding tests are abnormal and require specialized testing. So the bottom line is that number one, listen to the patient if they can talk. They'll, they'll give you very useful guide about how to treat their disease. Number two, error on the side of being aggressive. If somebody has major trauma, if somebody has a suspicion of intracranial hemorrhage, give factor first, do the imaging later. And then number three, if there's specific products available, uh, these can be easy to use. And I thank you very much uh, for paying attention to uh, this talk. So, Tom, thank you very, very much, not only for that talk, but the other three talks that you've also provided. So I would advise our listeners to check out all of them. They're all absolutely fantastic, all hematology related, but for the benefit of emergency clinicians. Tom, just before we let you go, I always ask every speaker who joins me on, on St. Mungo's the same question. And that is, if I could take you back on your uh, on a time machine, my time machine, to meet your junior self just starting your career, what piece of advice would you give them based on what you've learned throughout your career? What would you tell them? You know, I think what I've learned over my career and seeing other people's career is you basically got to do what you like doing. You know, I've seen people like, oh, I, I got to do this because that makes me important even though I don't hate, you know, I hate doing this. And that never works, you know. I've always enjoyed teaching. You know, I started back when teaching wasn't really well thought of and I've had a great career with that. You know, I was always told I'd starve to death being a classical hematologist. I've had a great career with that. And I've just had a great time. So I think you really, in the long term, just have to do what you find enjoyable, what you find rewarding, and everything else will just fall into place. And I think that would be the advice I would give myself. Fantastic. Well, look, Tom, thank you very, very much for joining us today. Thank you. No problem. Have a great day. So many, many thanks again to Tom DeLowry for that wonderful talk and all his pearls of wisdom. Remember, you can watch this lecture on the St. Mungo's Continuous page. That's www.continuous.com forward slash LP forward slash St. Mungo's. Many, many thanks again for watching and listening. And until next time, take care. <laughs>